0: This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, authors talking books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
1: John Buchan is known around the world as the author of The 39 Steps. Since its publication in 1915, the novel has never been out of print and has inspired numerous other authors and adaptations for film, television, radio and stage, starting with Alfred Hitchcock's celebrated 1935 movie version. Yet there was vastly more to J.B. than his success as a thriller writer. Beyond the 39 Steps, A Life of John Buchan is the new biography of the man who invented the modern thriller, written by his granddaughter, Ursula Buckham. With access to a family archive, much of which has never been published before, she's produced a fascinating portrait of a remarkable man. The countryside
2: of Upper Tweedale had experienced a fierce storm, so that the snow was piled high in drifts on the morning of the second day of December 1874. But that did not prevent family and neighbours from crowding into the parlour of Broughton Green, a square fronted, whitewashed farmhouse standing on the main Edinburgh to Carlisle road. They had come to witness the marriage of the Reverend John Buchan to Helen Masterton, one of two daughters of the house. Afterwards, they sat down to a generous farmhouse luncheon of hare soup, roast meats, creams, and trifles, and stayed on to drink cups of tea and eat cake and shortbread before braving the snow once more. The bride was seventeen years old, slight of build and no more than five feet tall with a strong face, blue eyes and a magnificent mane of golden hair which she'd put up for the first time that day. She wore a white satin dress and white kid shoes with rosettes on the toes and blue silk laces in sharp contrast to her new husband's sober clerical black. The Reverend John Buchan was ten years her senior of above-average height, strongly built with blue eyes, a ruddy complexion and mutton-chop whiskers. The couple had met in church the Christmas before, after Helen came home from boarding school in Peebles, the county town, at the time the young man was deputising for the sick resident minister of the Free Church of Scotland in Broughton. The year 1874 had seen a religious revival in Britain, generated in part by the arrival of the charismatic American missionaries and hymn writers Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey. And Helen had already heard tell of this eloquent, committed and handsome young preacher who held outdoor prayer meetings in Lonely Glens.
1: Ursula Buchan, welcome to My Life in Books.
3: Thank you very much indeed for inviting me, Red.
1: Your grandfather, John Buchan, was born in Perth in Scotland in eighteen seventy five and he was the son of a free Kirk minister and That really does lie at the heart of his future success
3: yes i think I think his upbringing is completely crucial to what sort of man he became, and his his father, who was a very saintly, rather unworldly man but a a true minister of the Kirk, um, Presbyterian, but a rather humorous and uh, interesting man who gave his children a lot of freedom Uh, and certainly made sure that they knew the ballads, they knew the stories, they read the Scottish writers. So they were brought up in an environment which was not at all rich, in fact, far from it, uh, because, of course, the Free Church, you know, needed its congregation to pay for the minister's uh, stipend. So um, there wasn't very much money, but but they were surrounded by books and by uh, good conversation, um, they they all learnt a lot of poetry. They knew Scottish history very well. So it was a it was a very Scottish childhood, but it was a very uh, it was a one that would really catch the imagination of an imaginative child.
1: And you mentioned the freedom that they were given. It almost seems like a little bit too much. John Buchan nearly died when he was five years old.
3: He did. And I mean, I think that was just one of those accidents. He was looking out of a carriage window um, at some bluebells and the carriage door just opened and and he fell out onto the road and broke his skull. But what was so extraordinary was that despite that, and he did nearly die and he had to lie for at least six months in bed while his skull mended, that his parents didn't overprotect him. I mean, we would find it. Very surprising just how much freedom he was given and his brothers and sister as well. And
1: like many of the great novelists such as Robert Louis Stevenson, that long period of recuperation led him to read even more books and really sparked his imagination.
3: No doubt about that. Another writer who spent a lot of his childhood uh, ill and, uh, and at home and confined was Sir Walter Scott. And I think there was a bit of a pattern here, actually, that these um, very imaginative little boys who spent a lot of time confined found their release in, in uh, making up stories.
1: And a book that you point out was pivotal in his loving a quest in a story, is A Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan.
3: Oh, it was very important. As a very young child, he was read Pilgrim's Progress and then he read it himself as soon as he could read and he learnt great chunks of it. It was it was an inspiration to him all his life and it's the greatest Christian allegory in the English language and it is all about a quest, Christian going on this quest and... There are many awful things befall him. He comes across friends, true and false. Uh, there's the castle doubt and doubting, and there's the slough of despond and all the rest of it. But at the end of the journey is the celestial city. And this was the great allegory of the Christian life. And John Buchan was extremely influenced by it.
1: And what with that and his love of Sir Walter Scott and Robert Burns and his wanderings far and wide in both the Scottish countryside and then later in life round Kirkoddy, we can see the roots of some of Richard Hannay's adventures in books like The 39 Steps and Greenmantle.
3: Oh yes, definitely. I mean, the, uh, they're also influenced by his undergraduate wanderings as well. But certainly, um, Richard Hanney goes to Galloway to escape a murder rap in London. And it's all about his travellings, his wanderings, the people he meets who help him, the people who he meets that, that hinder him. That's all pure Pilgrim's Progress, really.
1: And you mentioned that he went to university. It was the University of Glasgow, and he got a scholarship.
3: He did, yes. Well, certainly a bursary to to the University of Glasgow. He went up when he was 17 to do a general humanities course, but rather majoring on the classics, Latin and Greek, which were his great loves, particularly Latin. But he only stayed there three three out of the four years because his Greek professor, who was a great man, Professor Gilbert Murray, uh, encouraged him to apply to Oxford Really, because he thought he would make an academic career in Scotland and to have had some time in Oxford would be a, a good thing. And so, after three years, John Buchan got a scholarship to a junior Hume scholarship to Brazenose College, Oxford. And it was a, a really fateful decision. After the age of 20, he never lived in Scotland permanently again.
1: Although he never lost that deep sense of Scottishness. No, never. And you point out that actually he did always have a bit of a Scotsman's disdain for the English.
3: Oh, yes, that came from his childhood. Um, He and his sister particularly read all these bloodthirsty accounts of uh, of Scottish history and and the English always came out really badly, (laughs) such as at Flodden. And they, they were brought up to think that though they were not well off and and not particularly connected to any grand house, that they were the equal to everybody and certainly they were more than equal to anybody who was English.
1: John Buchan might not have stayed all four years at Glasgow University, but he stayed long enough to be published for the first time.
3: Yes 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 his first novel was published before he went to oxford it's probably one that n- none of your listeners have heard of because it's quite rare it was called Sir Quixote of the moors and it's about the killing times in the late 17th century in scotland bonnie dundee and all, all that but he'd also had articles published in newspapers and he, and uh, he wrote poetry he was he was very very active he he got going Jolly early in life, really.
1: And some of his undergraduate friends, who would also go on to become great men, even then were pointing out what a great chap he was and how affable. And he was capable of making friends with Everybody.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, I think if you've been the son of a of a Freekirk minister, he took a Sabbath school as a teenager. He when he walked to school in the Gorbals, because that's where his uh, father's church was when he went walked to the university. He saw all that Glasgow in the late 19th century could could offer in the way of poverty and um, and want and neglect. And he learned to deal with everybody. Really, it's um, it's a great gift, and a, a gift that tends to be the province of of, uh, of the children of um, of church and chapel ministers. They have to get on with everybody, and it's of great value in in later life.
1: And as we will come on to discuss, in a time where we might look back and think there was rather a rigid class hierarchy. It allowed him to be very socially mobile and to rise to the very high echelons of British society.
3: Well, yes, I mean, it was very stratified in lots of ways. The the higher echelons were were rather small, but um, they had always been prepared to take in people of real quality and, and brains and... John Buckham was already noticed by, you know, great people in London before he left Oxford. I mean, he even had a, he had an entry in Who's Who, where he, he said his occupation was undergraduate. Um, so, you know, people were already noticing him before he, before he even left Oxford. And he was invited to English country houses as a, as a, you know, in his early 20s, before ever he met my grandmother, who was part of that world he was already accepted into it because of his brains and his charm and his conversational powers.
1: And you quote a future Chancellor of the Exchequer who was a student with him as pointing out that John Buchan had great self-confidence without being at all arrogant.
3: Yes, it's a remarkable feat to pull off, actually, isn't it? But But yes, again, I think this comes from his very happy, uh, rather sort of noisy family life. He had five brothers and sisters, and uh, one of whom sadly died when she was only five. Very loving parents who yet um, were very consistent in their their, uh, treatment of the children. He was brought up in an environment where he knew he was going to have to make his way in life, no doubt about it. Um, There was no money behind him. He had to make his own way by his own brains and his own skills and people reacted extremely favourably to him. He he drew people to him all his life.
1: Now, Ursula, The 39 Steps is John Buchan's best-known novel, and he began writing it just before the outbreak of the First World War.
3: Yes, that's right. He had had some success with novels before. John Burnett of Barnes, uh, Lost Lady of Old Years... The Half-Hearted, and of course, Press to John, which used to be a very popular novel that you might very well have come across at school. But The 39 Steps really made his name. It was an instant success. It sold 25,000 copies in the first six weeks after it was published. It actually came out in 1915, so the year after it was written, in six weeks. And it was an immediate success with uh, Men in the Trenches, because it told the story of one man and his battle against a sinister German spy ring who wanted to steal the nation's uh, defence secrets. And you can see why that would appeal to to soldiers who were stuck in the trenches. Um, I I think probably the reason why it is still so famous is because of the film. Uh, I think without Alfred Hitchcock, it might, might have been eclipsed by Green Mantle or one of the others. It's a very short book. It's very exciting, uh, but it was written in a tearing hurry. And I think some of his others, uh, which are a bit more considered, might might be more successful now if it hadn't been for the film adaptations. And one of the reasons I wrote the biography of my grandfather was that I was concerned that his, his reputation might dwindle down into just you know, this junior partner, of Alfred Hitchcock, and that all the other amazing things he did in his life would would somehow get lost along the way because of the prominence of the 39 Steps. And that's why the book's actually called Beyond the 39
1: Steps. And JB was typically self-deprecating about the 39 Steps. He called it a shocker and actually said that Hitchcock had done a better job than he had.
3: Yes, yes. He told that to the head of Gomont British. This in 1935 when the when the film came out, and the head of Gomont British said he had never heard an author ever say that before. <laughs> but it was somehow typical of, of J.B. that he should um, run down his efforts because he he just found those books so easy to write. They were recreation for him. It's like we might spend an afternoon sitting in the garden, you know, listening to the birds. He, he'd just write a couple of chapters of a, of a novel and just pour out of him. And if you look at the, the manuscripts, you can see they're hand, handwritten. You can see how few uh, amendments he makes. They, they, they just come out in an absolute stream. And that all came from the fact that he was extremely well educated in the old Scottish system, which was second to none and also that he read absolutely voraciously. So he he had this really well-furnished mind that could just draw on his experiences and on his reading to produce these books really very, very quickly.
1: And they're remarkably concise both in their language and in length as well. Very much
3: so. The 39 steps is 265 pages long in the first edition. You can read it in an afternoon. But you you won't want to put it down anyway. It's terribly exciting. And that's true of Green Mantle and Mr. Standfast and The Three Hostages and The Island of Sheep, which are all the other books where Richard Hannay, his famous hero, Richard Hannay, appears.
1: And as you say, he he would sit down and handwrite these and you you paint a rather wonderful image of him writing surrounded by children and reading the books out loud to his wife, who was also an author and and very bookish, and, and your father and his siblings.
3: Absolutely, yes. They, they remembered it. Read, reading aloud in the evening was what they did, I mean, in the days before television, I suppose. And they weren't never they were very musical, my grandparents. They didn't, you know, settle down to listen to, to a symphony or something. They'd much rather uh, read to each other.
1: And whilst he was writing books like Mr Standfast and Green Mantle, he was also working for the... Ministry of Information, that the propaganda department of the British government, at one time actually out on the Western Front? Well,
3: what happened exactly was that in 1915, he was one of the Times' few correspondents out there on the Western Front. And uh, he was there for a time. And then he, um, he went to GHQ, General Hague's, well, then Field Marshal Hague's, GHQ in northern France, and wrote communiques and press releases and that sort of thing. But he was called back to London in the early part of 1917 by Lloyd George, who recently become prime minister, was extremely worried about a lot of German mendacious propaganda in the United States. And he asked him to set up a department called the Department of Information. So it wasn't then a ministry. And that had it, that had its disadvantages. It didn't have a a civil service sort of element to it, and so it never—it was never quite as successful as it might be. And in the end, it—but um, he he lobbied for it to become a ministry in the early part of 1918, and Lord Beaverbrook became the minister, and he worked under Beaverbrook. But um propaganda in those days didn't have all that. It wasn't—it wasn't such a loaded word as 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 Stalin and, and Hitler made it. They tried to be truthful if they could. I mean, obviously they. They set out the British position in the in the sort of kindest light, but they they didn't believe in lying, and so it was it was really publicity as much as uh, propaganda. But they were terribly keen to get the United States into the war. It, it was really important, and in fact, the the US did come in uh, from April sem- seventeen, I think. Uh, so he was he was right in the sort of thick of things in the last couple of years of the war. And meanwhile, he wrote Mr. Standfast uh, when, you know, he was incredibly busy working 16-hour days. And then, you know, during air raids, because there were German air raids in the First World War, he would write bits of Mr. Stanfast, which incidentally, of course, is a character from Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the features of, of the novel is that Hanny and his confederates have a, have a code and it's based on the Pilgrim's Progress, which is indicative. You we were talking earlier about the effect this book had on him. But uh, he, even when he was really pressed, he, w- he would he would write parts of Mr. Standfast. And he didn't know what the end was going to be when he started because the, the denouement, the climax of Mr. Stanfast is the march offensive by the Germans in, in 1918. So oh, goodness knows if that hadn't happened, what, what, what his ending would have been. I mean, he had such a fertile imagination. I'm sure he'd have come up with something.
1: And throughout the war, he was also producing an account of the war, which was very highly regarded and is still read.
3: Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, uh, quite a lot of it has been superseded, as you'd expect. But what happened was that he worked at the beginning of the war. In fact, soon after his marriage to my grandmother, Susan Grosvenor, he went to work for an old friend called Tommy Nelson. Thomas Nelson and Sons were publishers in Edinburgh and London, and he worked for them all the way till uh, 1929. When war broke out, he couldn't join up because of duodenal ulcer troubles. So he continued working for Nelson's, but he was really concerned about how they would survive through the war. A lot of companies were in dead trouble because so much of their workforce either volunteered or uh, later conscripted. So, in order to keep the printing presses going, he conceived the idea of writing a history of the war almost as it was being fought. So, they, they, it came out in 24 volumes every six months, really, from early 1915 till 1919. And it is a remarkable achievement. It goes more than a million words. And it's still read by historians because, though some of his conclusions aren't borne out by uh, later information, it was extraordinary how much he got down. and The men in the trenches thought, thought that it, it was extremely accurate. Um, and it was partly because he spent so much time in both in Flanders and in northern France, working for Hague at GHQ, that he had a very good idea what was going on. And having been a Scotsman who wandered all over the borders, he had a really good eye for to Topography, which is very useful for, for battlefields. So it was a great achievement. And at, uh, after the end of the war, he condensed it into a four volume history of the Great War, um, which, um, you know, the copies of which are much valued by collectors.
1: Now, though he made it through the war unscathed, unfortunately, his beloved brother Alistair did not. That's right. And that is one of the most moving parts of your book. It really hurt the entire family, but JB in particular.
3: Yes. Alistair was the, was the youngster. So he was a, nearly 20 years younger than JB. And he was almost a son to him, really. He, he cared about him deeply. He was a lovely boy, plainly. sunny and cheerful and, and much loved by everybody. And he was a captain in the, um, the 6th Battalion, the Royal Scots Fusiliers, which went over the top on the first day of the Battle of Arras on the 9th of April 1917. And he was mortally wounded almost immediately and died that afternoon. And they, they were absolutely distraught. And the same day, only half a mile away, Tommy Nelson, his, his partner and great friend, was also killed. So it was a terrible day. Uh, Edward Thomas, the poet, was also killed on the first day of the Battle of Arras.
1: Now, my favourite novel by John Buchan, ever since I read it as a teenager, is Greenmantle, and I was always rather fascinated as to the similarities between Sandy Arbuthnot and T. E. Lawrence of Arabia. And it's a question that you address in the book. Nobody knows if J.
3: B and T. Lawrence met in the war. Uh, They certainly became friends after it, really good friends after the war. But he will certainly have heard tales of this amazing man. But he certainly admitted that uh, Sandy Arbuthnot is at least partly um, based on Aubrey Herbert, who was a friend of his at Oxford, and a very um, colourful character who would who was a great traveller and would turn up in in various places um, unannounced. He uh, at one point, I think he the Albanians wanted him to be king. I mean, he was that sort of he was that sort of man. But T. Lawrence is a is a very interesting enigma, and J. B. puzzled over him a great deal. He he actually came to visit. He used to come unannounced. Came to visit my grandfather only ten days before. He was killed in that motorbike accident in Dorset in 1935. But JB did lobby Stanley Baldwin to get him, I think, out of the army and into the RAF. So Lawrence always felt extremely grateful to him.
1: And though your grandfather wasn't there when Lawrence came to visit, your father was?
3: Yes, he was, and he wrote in his own memoir, *The Rags of Time*. He he describes uh, Lawrence coming in a sort of uh, on his bruff motorbike, and um, this extraordinary little man. He was shorter even than my grandfather; who wasn't very tall, with piercing blue eyes, and extraordinary intelligence, a scholarly man actually. And my father never forgot meeting him, and then and then watching the bruff disappear in a sort of cloud of, of smoke down the road.
1: Ursula, I know it was incredibly important to you that the book was recorded as an audio book because you have links to sight loss yourself.
3: Yes. My father, so that's John Buchan's second son, William, in his old age, his sight deteriorated a great deal to the point where he really couldn't see much at all. But he and I had always had a a mutual interest in gardening and gardens and flowers. And one day I went to see him and I took a rose called Green Mantle. It must have been June because it was flowering. Green Mantle, obviously it was named after the Walter Scott character in Red Gauntlet, but John Buchan had also written a book called Green Mantle. And so I thought he would enjoy it. And the thing about green mantle is it's a, a rose that smells, if you rub the leaves, it smells of apple. So I gave him this rose carefully because it's quite prickly. And he rubbed the leaves and the smell of apple just sort of wafted through the room. And I also took him his favourite rose, which he'd given to me at one point, Madame L'Oreal de Barney, a really, really scented rose, pink, uh, lots of petals, very scented. And um, you could see that it was just unlocking memories, happy memories of of, uh, Summer in the Garden for him. And it really made me realise just how important other senses are when you've lost one that was so important to you. Uh, In his case, really important because uh, he was a great reader. And when I was there, he told me about the particular book he was listening to and I could tell that it was a, a great source of solace to him that he that he had these tapes that he could listen to and relive the enjoyment of the books he'd read uh, when he was fully sighted.
1: Bloomsbury came to you and asked you whether you would like to narrate Beyond the 39 Steps yourself. And though you've read the introduction and the afterword, you had a great idea as to who should take on the main body of the book.
3: Well, yes, I, I I said I was happy to do the beginning and the end because they were the personal bits, the introduction, where I said why I was writing it. And the afterward, when I described going to see my grandmother in her old age, she had a very long widowhood because my grandfather died when he was only 64 and she was a bit younger than him anyway, so she had a very long widowhood. And I, and I went to see her and I describe it at the end of the book. But I knew that I couldn't read the whole book. It seems to me that that's a, a job for a professional, really, that I would slur over my words and it, it wouldn't be satisfactory at all. But I have a nephew, Alistair Buchan, who is a great grandson of John Buchan, and he's a professional actor with a lovely voice and I thought well he's the obvious chap to ask and he he, I think was very pleased to do it and it was a great success and I'm very glad that I didn't take it on myself but let him do it.
1: Well when I knew that I was going to be interviewing you I also dropped Alistair an email and here's what he has to say about the recording of the book. Alistair welcome to My Life in Books. It's lovely to be here thank you. You are an actor and a voice artist, but Beyond the 39 Steps was the first audio book that you'd recorded. How did you find narrating the book differed to reading the book for pleasure yourself?
0: I do have a couple of friends who are voiceover artists who've done a lot more than I had, and I hadn't anticipated. They all said, oh, it's going to be tiring. And I thought, no, I've read it once before, I know this story. But it is actually, it's, it's quite technically a, a tiring thing to do. Uh, it demands a huge amount of your voice, and there comes a point about sort of 4.30 every afternoon where you just can't really talk any longer and everything just sort of shuts down a bit. The other sort of fascinating thing about it is, of course, I, I say my surname Bucken. I always have. But I, I, I gathered uh, in conversations with Ursula that that was, in fact, inaccurate. So I had to alter it to Buchan every time it's written down. And there's something very, very difficult about seeing your own name and having to pronounce it differently.
1: I guess it must have helped knowing... Ursula's personality and the way that she spoke as far as getting the voice of the book right?
0: Yes, I think that's right, getting the tone right. Ursula was very keen to write something that was not just a hagiography, that was very sensitive, not just to JB, as he's known in the family, but also to his immediate family around him. And you can feel that quite caring, that quite sensitive approach to everything throughout the book. And I think it was very important for me
1: to carry that tone. And so it didn't seem too authoritarian. And what was the most surprising thing that you learnt about JB?
0: I hadn't realised just how unwell he was or how much he struggled with that. And I found that quite moving. When you're reading within your own head, that's a theme, but suddenly having to say these things over and over again. And the other thing that really stuck to me was how much he loved Canada and the Canadian culture and how much he sort of fought for, with a small eye, an independent Canada. And that should be, there's that quote, isn't there, of that being what every Canadian owes their allegiance to, was to Canada and Canada's king and not to the empire in the first place.
1: And he was quite ahead of his time as far as recognising the diversity and need for inclusion of its indigenous people.
0: Yes, absolutely. He moved that conversation about the First Nation Canadians forward, certainly, and recognised that this was a very important, well, the central part of Canada, the original Canada, where many people who'd been before and after uh, were less sympathetic to that.
1: One of the most emotional parts of the book is when your namesake, his brother Alistair, Mm. is killed in the First World War. And I... Thought I detected a lump in your throat as you were narrating that. That's very kind of you. I didn't know that much about Alistair. Obviously, he died long, 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 long
0: before I was born. he died long before my father was born. Uh, but Ursula writes him so well. Not that he's a fictional character, of course, but you, you do really fall in love with this, this man. He was obviously uh, such a support and so devoted uh, to John and, and vice versa. And I suppose I did think what could have been, what would he have become? Because he was a remarkable man.
1: Absolutely. The, the Buchan blood definitely flowed through his veins too, didn't it? Yeah, definitely.
0: Adventurer and author and poet. And yeah.
1: There are many books by John Buchan that have not been made into audiobooks. Are there any plans for you to record any more of them? I'd love
0: to read a, a large number of them. I think we're seeing an audiobook boom, and I think there will be more and more in demand for them. I haven't had any conversations yet about recording any, but I would be very open to that.
1: Well, let's hope that this recording takes you beyond 39 steps too, and yeah. that we get far more books by John Buchan, read by Alistair Buchan. That's very kind of you. Alistair Buchan, thanks very much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. And now back to you, Ursula. Beyond the Thirty Nine Steps is not the only book that you have written. You are a journalist and have written very authoritatively several books on gardening.
3: Yes, yes. Well, after I read modern history at Cambridge, um, so I've always had a tremendous interest in social history, in particular. But I also trained to be a gardener at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew, and um, for many years I wrote both for national newspapers and magazines, on gardening. And I think I've notched up 15 gardening books, probably, (laughs) Um, one of which I know where you can get in Canada. It's called The English Garden, and um, I'm rather proud of it, actually, I have to say.
1: And that is far from the only link that the Buchan family has with Canada, because in 1935, John Buchan was appointed Governor-General very much at the request of the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, William Leon Mackenzie King.
3: That's right, yes. They had met in the 20s more than once. And uh, Mackenzie King was a great admirer of John Buchan. Uh, He was low church, he was Scottish, he didn't have a peerage, all the things that appealed to Mackenzie King. And he thought he was a great mind as well. (laughs) <laughs> and so he recommended to the king. I mean, it was a, a crown appointment. So my grandfather became governor general, uh, but the king wasn't having any of this commoner business. He uh, he made him uh, the first Baron Tweedsmere of Elsfield. And so uh, my grandparents went to Canada in October 1935 as Lord and Lady Tweedsmere. And I believe that in Canada these days, he's still remembered more as Tweedsmure than as John Buckham. But he he was very pleased to go. He was thrilled to get the nod, as it were, because he'd always liked Canada when he'd visited. And he had relations, actually, in Alberta, lots of Scottish connections with Canada. And I think, well, probably because of the religious aspects, uh, the Church of Scotland, the Free Kirk and all the rest of it, uh, he felt very much at ease with Canadians and could see how important this dominion was, the sort of premier dominion. Um, He had very much a view the British Empire should become the Commonwealth of Nations, which in fact it did. And uh, he settled in extremely well and was much loved in Canada and sincerely mourned when he died.
1: And whilst he was out there, he continued to write. He wrote a history of Canada for children, and he also was rather fascinated by the wilderness, and it was the setting for his final novel.
3: Yes, Sick Heart River, it's called. In um, I think in the States, and possibly Canada too, it was published as Mountain Meadow. But it's it's a very very fine novel. In fact, there are plenty of people who think that it's it's his best. He wrote it in his la- the last year of his life, and it was very influenced not only by his own wanderings, his uh, his journeys in Canada, but also his son worked for the Hudson's Bay Company in Baffin Island for a year and uh, the diary that he kept, parts of that find its way into the novel. It's a very fine novel. Uh, So Edward Leithen, his bachelor lawyer hero of of a number of novels, is dying, and it's what happens to him in in the Northwest Territories before he dies. So um, I, I couldn't recommend that to our listeners more highly. And of course, The Grateful People of Canada named a provincial park after him, the Tweedsmere Provincial Park North and South in British Columbia. I've never been, sadly. I'd love to go. Uh, But he and my grandmother visited it in 1937 and my grandmother wrote about it in the National Geographic magazine. It obviously had a great effect on them. They thought it was a, a wonderful place.
1: And as you say, when he did die prematurely in 1940, there was a huge outpouring of grief and he was given a state funeral.
3: He was, yes. He lay in state in the Senate House in Ottawa and then uh, the funeral um, was nearby and his coffin was carried on a gun carriage pulled by naval ratings uh, back to the station where it went to Montreal where he was cremated and then his. Ashes were secretly borne home to England because, of course, it was wartime. Uh, and the people of Canada were very, they mourned him most sincerely because he, he didn't have any side. He didn't patronise them. He was always interested in what they were doing. He, he understood so many different types of people and they just seemed to respond incredibly positively to him. And vice versa. He, they, my grandparents really loved Canada.
1: And he was also passionate about literacy and education. And I believe that he founded the Governor General's Literary Awards, which remain Canada's top literary award.
3: Yes, indeed. The, the, the famous GGs. Yes, uh, uh, they are due to him. And in fact, my grandmother was also very interested in literacy and uh, the importance of books and libraries. And she started the Prairie Book Scheme. And I think in the end, some 40,000 books ended up in the, the, the Western provinces that were very badly hit by drought in the 1930s. So altogether, they they had a very beneficent influence on, on Canadian literature one way or another.
1: And theirs was a lifelong partnership And actually, at at the heart of Beyond the 39 Steps, I really did feel lay an enduring love story and and rather an unlikely one in some ways. She was a member of the aristocracy.
3: Yes, yes, indeed. Um, It was quite unlikely, but uh, I think he was such an attractive character, I think. And she was very intelligent, cultured, well-traveled, but not terribly well-educated. Um, And I think she recognised his his sterling qualities uh, when she met him. And and also her family around her uh, did as well. They took to him very quickly. So though it seems on the outside to have been an unlikely match, actually, it turned out to be a very suitable one. And the only sadness was that he died too young and she had a very long widowhood. And she didn't die till 1977.
1: And they were, of course, both united by a love of books that has also carried on down the generations with, of course, you and a couple of your cousins.
3: Yes, and and my brother, James. Bucken as well, yes, and a half sister, Perdita Bucken. I mean, they're, they're um, uh, you can't stop us writing. I'm I'm afraid. I, I I don't believe it's in the genes. I think that would be sort of a strange thing to carry on. But I do think that if you grow up in a family where writing is thought to be a very good thing to do, it does encourage you when you're young. And I was very much encouraged, and I think that that made a difference. And now I can't stop myself. I write. I write every day. <laughs> it's a sort of addiction, really. It's a great way of spending one's life, frankly.
1: Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
3: There was a book I read when I was about 10, The Flight of the Heron. It had been uh, published, I should think, I don't know, 50 years before. It was a historical novel. We always liked historical novels. And this was by a an English spinster lady called DK Broster. But it was the most exciting story of the 45, the Jacobite so-called rebellion of 1745. And I absolutely thrilled to it. And it it just, it turned me into a, a reader, really, I think. I read the other two in the the trilogy, The the North and The Dark Mile. And I was transported back to 18th century Scotland, well, transported to 18th century Scotland, and I've never regretted having uh, spent so much of my life reading. I don't think you can write unless you read. The two are absolutely intricately <laughs> entangled with each other. The, the words that come to me uh, come because I've read a great deal. And so so that was, that was an important book for me, D.K. Broster, The Flight of the Heron.
1: And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
3: Oh, uh, well, every year I reread Jane Austen and it doesn't really matter which one, but I think particularly Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion. Those are my two favourite Jane Austens. And Every time I read them, and as I say, I read them about once a year, I find things that I haven't seen before. They are incredibly rich and delightful. And whatever the weather, they have the capacity to transport me to somewhere, somewhere quite else.
1: Wonderful. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
3: Well, I really don't think I can I, I can get away without mentioning a novel by John Buchan, and as I read them all a lot, I'm perfectly justified, I think, in doing so. I I, I said that I particularly like reading historical novels, and I do, and the, there are a number of very good ones that John Buchan wrote. But the one I particularly like is called The Blanket of the Dark, which is a, a quotation from Macbeth, in fact. But it's a It's a historical novel set very close to where John and Susie Buchan went to live uh, outside Oxford after the Great War, a place called Ellsfield. And this book, The Blanket of the Dark, is set around that area. And it's um, in the time of Henry VIII, uh, and it concerns a a young sort of novice monk who, it turns out, is descended from uh, a pretender to the throne, the Duke of Buckingham. And it's what happens to him. And it's a thrilling book. And I was brought up in Oxfordshire, not very far from where John and Susie Buchan lived. And it's my country. And he just had this amazing capacity to imagine a place several hundred years ago. His historical imagination was extraordinary. And I know the places where he he writes about, and I know what they look like now. And I'm just amazed by how he manages to set this landscape in a time not of our own.
1: Well, Ursula Buchan, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with us this afternoon and for reintroducing us to a true Renaissance man who just sounds like a thoroughly decent human being. Uh, John Buchan really was Quite an extraordinary fellow, wasn't he?
3: Well, he certainly was. Um, I I was very careful, though, not to turn my book into a to a hagiography, as they say. I I tried to to view his life with a clear historian's eye. But he just was a remarkable, a unique man, and there's really no getting away from it.
1: And he's left a wonderful legacy internationally, and particularly in Canada. I think so. Yes. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Ursula Buchan, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how.
0: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.